Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, we are excited to welcome you, Dress listeners, to our second annual Halloween edition of Dress. <laughs> Last year, in our quite popular episode, When Fashion Kills, we interviewed Dr. Allison Matthews David about her book, Fashion Victims, The Dangers of Fashion Past and Present. So if you've not checked out that episode yet, please do. It's particularly apt for this time period. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, April, uh, Halloween is just days away, and I'm dying to know if you'll be dressing up for this year's festivities. Oh, yes. I think I will. And this year, the category is Mrs. Roper Realness. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I might be dating myself here a little bit, but I'm going to go as Mrs. Roper from Three's Company. So I have a fabulous satin Oscar de la Renta caftan that has like a printed leopard and floral motif on it. I'm just going to throw on a beaded necklace and maybe like a red curly wig, like an Annie wig, and voila, I'm Mrs. Roper. Oh, that's super fun. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my husband and I are both costumers. And I know I've said this on the show before, but we just, it's very rare that we actually dress up for Halloween. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like your job, so uh, it's a lot. Yeah, I do have plans to attend an 80s prom version of my body combat class, so I'll be dressing up for that, but that's as far oh. as I've gotten. <laughs> So wait, are you going to wear 80s workout gear for that? Or like a prom outfit? I'm wearing a prom outfit that is adapted to my workout gear. So we'll see how successful that actually proves. But I'm excited. It's going to be fun. (laughs) Please send photos. I also thought this might be a fun opportunity for us to kind of revisit uh, our favorite costume highlights from our life from the past. Uh, I don't know if you have any in particular that you would like to share, but I definitely have some favorites that I'd be willing to pull out of the uh, closet. Proverbial closet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So a really fun one from kind of recently was one year, two friends of mine and I, we went as the twins and Danny from The Shining. And Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and it was my guy and girlfriend were the twins and I was Danny. So oh my gosh. <laughs> I had on the Apollo space shuttle sweater that he wears in the movie. And I had on like these like brown corduroys and this really hideous kind of like bowl cut wig. I did not even look like myself at all. It was it was pretty bad, but also in a good way. So that was fun. But I think one of my all-time favorite ones, and the only reason this was all-time favorite is because it was extremely last minute. I kind of only had a couple hours to throw a costume together. It was back in 2006. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but remember when all bags of spinach were recalled because there was... Yes. <laughs> There was like an E. coli outbreak. Well, so I was like, oh, crap, I have to go. What am I going to do for this costume? So I was just like, I was looking in my closet and I spotted a clear plastic dry cleaning bag. And I was like, aha, 
I'm going to be a bag of spinach. So oh my gosh. <laughs> I ran down and I got out my <laughs> acrylic paints and I I laid the uh, dry cleaning bag down on the table. I painted like the graphics of it, like it was a bag of spinach, but then I left most of it clear. I cut holes for my arms. I put myself inside of it, and then I stuffed it with green tissue paper on the inside. So I was a very scary bag of spinach. And my partner at the time, um, he actually went as E. coli, and he, <laughs> yeah, he did that by we we had balloons in the house, so we blew up the balloons to like different various sizes, and then just like attached it to his clothes. So it was a little ridiculous, but it was fun and easy and relatively quick. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the most recent costume, gosh, probably went ten years ago. But Sean and I went as Mister and Mrs. Clean, which was hilarious because my husband is bald. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's as creative as as we have gotten over the years, unfortunately. But some of my favorite memories are from my childhood. My mom would make, you know, custom make our clothes. Um, Haley and I went as kind of a pink and gold LeMay princess and lace and LeMay princesses one year. That was really fun. And then my favorite memory is when I got to dress up as a fortune teller um, and go in kind of like this little box and be a fortune teller at my elementary school's Halloween fair. Oh my gosh, were you like in a cardboard box that was cut out? Yes, it was awesome. (laughs) I had the black wig, I had the, you know, the mole, et cetera, all the things that I thought uh, dictated a fortune teller. And And kids would ask me questions and I thought I was really smart and my answers um, to them. So that was really fun. But yeah, I mean, Halloween's such an exciting time. I'm really excited, hoping our listeners will share some of their Halloween costumes with us. Yes. And then before we get to today's guest, I want to talk to you about this amazing cartoon that I think all of our listeners will appreciate. It's by artist Gemma Carell, and it's called Slutty Halloween Costumes. But wait for it of the Victorian era. Uh And we will absolutely share this because it is hilarious. It is. And we are just going to, we're not going to describe the graphics. We're just going to tell you like the titles of the costumes because I think that kind of, it (laughs) it sums it up enough. Um, First, we have the bloomer wearing strumpet. And then we have the seductive laudanum bottle. (laughs) Followed by the Velocipede Harlot. She's riding a bike, obviously. And Sexy Tuberculosis Bacteria, which I guess in some kind of strange way relates back to my spinach and E. coli costume. Exactly. People. <laughs> uh, and then there's an unwed mother, which would have been terrifying in terrifying. the Victorian era. <laughs> and then Lady Oddly's Secrets, which I think might be a sanitary napkin. I'm not sure. I think it's a book. Oh, it could also be a book. But I don't know this book, so we'll have to investigate further. Yeah, that's true. Because sanitary napkins used to come in boxes. That's the only reason I th- think, mm-hmm. thought of it. And they were very secretive in how they um, advertise them. And then you have the red-hot bath taker and the bare-ankled floozy. Because, of course, <laughs> to have shown your ankles uh, would have been quite scandalous and terrifying. Yeah. So we will post this um this graphic because it's a uh, share it and it's it's so fun. But okay, we are here today because costume is, you know, I guess I am a costumer, <laughs> but the history of costume and all things costume uh, and dressing up for festivities such as Halloween, it's just not my or your specialty. 
So we're turning to the experts for today's discussion, and that is Lucy Clayton and Dr. Benjamin Wilde, who are the wildly entertaining and incredibly insightful creators and hosts of the podcast, Dress Fancy. I am a huge fan, and I am thrilled to have them here on the show today. Welcome, Ben and Lucy. Ben and Lucy, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for having us. It's, uh, we're both big fans, so it's so nice to be asked to join in. Absolutely. Yeah, right back at you. I have listened to all of your episodes since day one, so this is a real treat for me to have you both here. So to Americans such as myself, the term fancy dress evokes really for us kind of a scene of dressing up for a party or event in your nicest, fanciest clothes. And yet the phrase does not hold the same connotations in the UK. So if you would both please introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about what you do. And then if you could please define the term fancy dress for those listeners that might not know. Of course, of course we can. So our podcast is called Dress Fancy, and it's all about fashion and fantasy and fancy dress. And you're right, that language probably needs a bit of explaining. Uh, In the UK, fancy dress means very specifically to be in costume, so to dress as other than yourself. Uh, It really doesn't mean posh or smart or formal, although I suppose that does rather depend who you're dressing up as. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Um, But in fact, the name of our podcast is is inspired by the way it would be written on a party invitation, on a costume party invitation. So it's a playful twist on the way that dress code would be specified socially, I guess. And we are the hosts. I'm costume fanatic Lucy Clayton. And I'm cultural historian Dr. Benjamin Wilde. So we we joke that I'm the enthusiast and Ben is the expert. I think actually I'm going to interject because I think that's, that's rather generous on your part. We've had this sort of <laughs> idea before that I'm the kind of theorist. So in the world of dressing up, I think you are more the, the expert. You're at the Glugan end, which I think it's is... It's true. Is, I am is, at the coal face. <laughs> exactly. Um, Ben's just in the library. He's just writing about it. I think I've said before, so that that doesn't really count. I do always carry a glue gun (laughs) for costume emergencies. (laughs) Love a bit of hot glue. Uh, And so each week we share stories of ordinary people in extraordinary outfits. Uh, And the show, I guess, explores what is a super niche, often highly flammable subject (laughs) in all its creative and sequined and chaotic glory. And for us, although that focus for each episode or theme seemingly might sound quite narrow. In fact, it's allowed us to travel through time and space and examine what is it about identity and dress that is so compelling. Right. And we've covered fashion significance quite significantly on our podcast, but you have, like you just said, you have this entire podcast dedicated just to fancy dress historically and today. And it's incredible how many episodes you have done and how many different angles that you both have come at it. And I am, like I said, a huge fan. And fashion and fancy dress, you know, the use of costume have quite a lot in common. Both have been downplayed in their cultural and societal significance, and no doubt because of their associations with frivolity and material culture. Um, You can tell me if you maybe agree with that or not, but both are incredibly important to the fabric of societies around the world. They're intimately intertwined with politics, culture, religion, and as we'll discuss later on in the podcast, even constructions of race, gender, class. So you both have this entire um, podcast dedicated to fancy dress. So what what is it about fancy dress that makes it so important? I, th- I think you're right. I think I'd agree with what you say. 
And this idea of defining fancy dress is something that I've been wrestling with in a book I've been writing about this um, very topic, um, which comes out in um, February of next year. Because I think when we think about um, fancy dress... Buy Ben's book. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Bye, bye, bye. I'll say it so he doesn't have to. (laughs) Bless you, Lucy. Um, Get your wallets out. (laughs) But when we think about fancy dress, we have this image in our mind, whether we love, whether we loathe it. We, We kind of know what it means. There is that familiarity. And I think throughout history and around the world, we've needed very little encouragement to don a disguise. And I think, as you you say, that is something we do do in our podcast. We sort of interrogate those motivations and, and myriad meanings of the psychology, particularly of what people are um, wearing and in a material form, then document that in our dedicated Instagram feed at Dress Fancy Podcast, where there is that sort of visual compendium to what we're talking about. And I think for me, some of the things that define fancy dress is often it is worn at a liminal time. It is often a time that is set apart physically, psychologically. It's often clothing that is worn almost on these sort of set piece occasions. But I think what's also compelling about it is that because of when it is worn and how it is worn, it acts as a sort of cultural conduit. There are no barriers to entry with um, fancy dress. In that sense, it's it's very democratic. Anyone can get involved. And as we've already heard, particularly <laughs> those of you who, like Lucy, always carry a glue gun strapped to her, her waist. <laughs> um, but I think that there is this curious point, I think, about fancy dress, that on the one hand, it is ubiquitous, but it is also then marginalised. And you're absolutely right that it's a topic that's been underrepresented by academics and and fashion historians as well. Um, And that's actually surprising when you think of the rich, beautiful and Mm. often hilarious ways we use dressing up as a culture to express ourselves. So either to make a statement or to push a message or sometimes simply to celebrate. And so our series is it's not about costume in theatre or film or ballet and opera, because of course there is lots of material and uh, analysis of that, but it's about the personal private history of costume. So the parties, the summer fates, all those school plays, and then intricate subcultures. And sort of, if you think about the creativity of the cosplay communities and the sort of hierarchy and um, grades, I guess, Mm. of, of different themes within just within the cosplay community, you can get sort of more than super specific. And often the elaborate outfits we wear just tell so much of the story. And we feel that that story has been not heard enough in history. And so that's why we're trying to kind of elevate it, I guess. And importantly, we always root our conversations in contemporary contexts. So it might be that we cross-reference the work of a particular fashion designer. Uh, so like Craig Green, we're doing this season, or Tom Brown, or we find parallels between the past and present. So for example, um, connections between what was worn at the Romanov ball, say in 1903, and pop culture moments like the outrage at Melania Trump's hideous don't care Zara jacket. (laughs) You know, these strange kind of connections come together, which I think are always, even to us, quite surprising. I think so. And I think it is that way that even looking back into the past, you can always have these very strong resonances and direct connections with the present. Right. And I also think it's really interesting, and I study fashion in this way, but costume and fancy dress really as this semiotic, Mm. um, how it can relay these kind of socially recognized symbols without having to say anything. Mm. 
um, kind of these culturally, social, societally recognized stereotypes and tropes, be it a witch or a popular figure. And we'll talk more about that later in the podcast. Um, but so in America, especially, we associate dressing up in costume or fancy dress primarily with Halloween, although Santa Cons become a huge thing lately. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you have that in the UK. No, but, uh, not yet. Thousands not yet. of Santas <laughs> descend upon New York City or wherever they are in the world um, across the nation, but it's pretty interesting. But so... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to that. And December is, is nearing, so <laughs> no doubt the, the Santas will flock our way. <laughs> oh, man. It's pretty. It's a pretty interesting experience. Yeah, there are other words I might use other than interesting, but I'll... <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for that for now. <laughs> Don't be unfestive. Sorry, then. sorry. Yes. We are still in October, to be fair. <laughs> right, to be fair. But as soon as Halloween ends, we will. Yeah, we've got to get in, in shape for that stuff. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so throughout history, we find fancy dress really in the most unlikely of places. So Moving, you can both speak about the different ways fancy dress has been used historically outside of, you know, these more typical Halloween-like celebrations. Right. Well, again, you're quite right to say, isn't it just a small idea? Isn't it kind of this seasonally specific mm-hmm. moment where we all dress as witches? Um But let's just say we are not running out of topics to discuss anytime (laughs) soon. (laughs) And in fact, alarmingly, our our kind of master list of things that we want to cover just gets bigger and bigger and uh, and more surprising kind of on a weekly basis. I don't think I'm exaggerating. No, not at all, no. (laughs) Um, I think what we've learned since we started the show is that fancy dress is just this incredible filter through which to see the world. And so that gives us a license to visit lavish costume balls from bygone eras, to follow the roots of protest marches, eavesdrop on some pretty tasteless interpretations of themes at times. <laughs> we've suddenly done that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've rummaged around in the archives of the National Theatre here in London through, I don't know, jewellery boxes of the rich and famous and pranced about on stage regularly at yes. the Royal Academy in London, at the Royal Academy of Arts, which is, is a sort of an establishment mm. uh, all of its own, really. And we do that alongside this incredible cast of characters, both contemporary and historic. So the Duchess of Devonshire, Grayson Perry, Cecil Beaton, Titanic survivors, handmaidens, and of course, my absolute favourite, Heidi Klum. (laughs) (laughs) So we're just about to start season six. And in that season, I guess to answer your question about Beyond Halloween, we'll be covering things like Pearly Kings and Queens here in London, Victoriana as an influence, Modern Mermaids, which I know you guys have spoken about briefly uh, recently too in an episode that we loved. And then for our own Halloween episode, we're looking at interpretations of fairy tales and we're recording in a house made of pumpkins. Absolutely. (laughs) And I think on that note, it must also be said that whilst we are contextualising cultural moments, I alluded to our Instagram feed and we also do like a little bit of um, costume porn. So we like the idea (laughs) of detail and themes. (laughs) So from the intricacy of diamonds that have been sewn onto corsets to, we've already mentioned, but again, this sort of doomed um, Romanov dynasty, the ball of 1903, where we really did sort of study and focus on on what was worn with the help of some beautiful surviving photography. And then, of course, come full circle and up to the present by thinking about what Kim Kardashian wore to the um, Met Gala. So this, also, of course, a corset with diamonds on. Yes, absolutely. Spookily. So those parallels, those <laughs> continuities are, are really just endless. 
Yeah, and I especially love, I mean, you have so many fantastic episodes, but some of my favorites are the Warriors and Wigs episode because this idea that, you know, fancy dress and war have so much in common historically is pretty fantastic, kind of those intersections. I think that was the episode where you had some fabulous reenacting, which I absolutely loved. People kind of reading primary source material helped to bring that moment alive. Can you guys actually talk a little bit more about what a fancy dress ball is, because that's a pretty foreign concept. Um, maybe <laughs> today, although it's probably interpreted in different ways, but not something we're quite familiar with in America. Well, I would say that fancy dress balls are heartland in terms for us in terms yeah, of absolutely. themes we love discussing. <laughs> um, and part of that is because I guess in the past they were a more common event. I yeah. guess we've said that things like the Met Gala are probably as close as you get as a contemporary reference for the sort of costume balls that might have been held in the past. So even just in the subjects that we've covered so far, we've referenced four or five kind of yeah. big deal parties. So here, certainly in the UK, but actually also the Russian example, mm. you are talking about major society events, high octane glamour, regardless of the period, yeah. and a huge pressure to interpret the theme of the evening, whatever that may be, however that is specified on the dress code by your presumably quite terrifying host most (laughs) of the time. Uh, uh, A huge pressure to get it right. And what's amazing about that when we use these historic examples, and they can be as recent as Truman Capote's black and white ball in New York. You know, it's not like these events have died out, but they're certainly less sadly Mm. for us. (laughs) Although I do try my best. You do actually, you know, you've hosted some legendary balls yourself. I think what's also interesting is that although essentially we are talking about the social elite, what I think is also quite interesting and what provides so much of the interesting content for our discussions is that at these costume balls, you would often have, and indeed at at many fancy dress events, a complete flattening of the social hierarchy. So you have that quite unique intermingling of, if you like, the social lofty and the social low. And I think, though, that interesting juxtaposition where you have people who would normally be separated by status and social context all in the mix together, I think provides often for us some of the very unique personal stories. And I think throughout much of our series and and, and previous episodes, there is that sense that time and time again, we're seeing that fancy dress is the exception that often proves so many societal and sartorial rules. And actually a great example of that being demonstrated is Lady Malcolm's Servants Ball, which we also talked about, which was a costume ball held just down the road from where we're recording at the Royal Albert Hall. And it was designed just for servants. So for one night only, this Mm. kind of crazy decadent party, well, a proper ball, which, you know, people who would were kind of reveling that night would not have been experiencing on a daily basis. Not it was this big deal. But again, the emphasis on costume and the way we covered that was in uh, talking about gender identity yeah. and it was a good <laughs> example of it not being of it not being a high society moment. No, absolutely. I think, you know, it was an opportunity for those people who would be downstairs, usually sort of gawking at those upstairs enjoying themselves, to actually be acknowledged to have a sense of escapism and frivolity. But I think what the Lady Malcolm's Balls demonstrate, as you said, in talking about um, gender, is that even then, even on that one night of the year, when they, you know, sort of let their hair down, as it were, and and could dress as they wanted, they were still being heavily policed in terms Mm. of how they should 
dress, how they should conform. And in terms of the primary sources that we looked at, residents in um, Lucy's <laughs> neck of the woods um, who were sort of naysayers and killjoys. Yeah, there's been a strange theme where we yeah. seem to find lots of source material where it's my sort of <laughs> ancestral, but, but neighbours nevertheless, <laughs> in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, complaining about everything, mm. every single big party that's ever been held and which sounds, you know, glorious to the modern ear. There's sort of these spiteful letters to the to the police saying, why were they wearing what they were wearing and couldn't they pipe down? It makes me feel very sad. <laughs> yeah, so, so many fantastic episodes that you referenced, so many episodes for you to catch up on Dress listeners if you are not already following Lucy and Ben and Dress Fancy. And, you know, so of course, fancy dress has been used to dress up for these costume balls historically, um, but it's also been used to wield political, powerful political messages um, historically and today. And I'm hoping you can both give us a few examples of this and maybe talk about how and why clothing and fancy dress costume specifically is really this important, incredible tool for political expression. Lucy, you just did a fantastic TED Talks on this very subject, which everyone will have to check out <laughs> immediately following this podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, that's right. I mean, the TED Talk was inspired, in fact, uh, I think rather charmingly, by mm. our very first episode. So it was the kind of, um, the idea with which we tested this theory. Yeah. Um, so it was quite nice that then it became probably the biggest thing that uh, that we've done with the idea. It's on TED.com now, uh, and it's called The True Power of a Good Outfit. Uh, and I guess it's an attempt to demonstrate how people use dressing up to speak out. And I refer to lots of examples, and it's interesting to see actually even since that TED Talk came out, but how the rise of this phenomena continues to grow. So only this week, there have mm. been some incredible press pictures of the Extinction Rebellion guys in their red gowns. It's an, a particularly brilliant picture that we used, uh, which we will share with your yeah. listeners, which uh, is the red flowing gowns. It's a really um, austere and kind of, well, deliberately frightening aesthetic yeah. set against the line of the Met Police here in London in their high-vis jackets and their helmets and it really looks like a moment in time that is critical. Well, it's it's the most pure form of visual protest, yeah. I think. So it's interesting to see how that's really, I feel like that's gaining momentum rather than getting quieter. Um, and I guess the purpose or the premise of the talk is, is that costume actually can make us braver. Mm. So it can help us express ourselves in ways that we wouldn't perhaps otherwise. Um, but there's also this imaginative imperative to costume too, which I think mm. makes it distinct from fashion or any other kind of getting dressed. So it can really help us imagine a better future or imagine ourselves into a place that we think is uh, worth fighting for, I guess. So the climate change protests are a really powerful example of that theory. I mean, having said it's all about bravery, I was so nervous uh, doing that talk that, in fact, if you do, if you watch it to the end and it's about 15 minutes long, I actually run off the stage at the end. I think I'm the only person to have done a TED Talk who just legs it off. I was, I could not wait to be, for it to be finished. But I think speaking to your point, I think what you brought out brilliantly in the talk is this idea of world making, which is something we've mentioned in previous series and episodes and as you say this idea of costume making us braver that idea of almost enabling us to transcend ourselves to right. not so much become somebody different but to feel more in tune with our inner ideas passions or indeed rage to feel a need to, to act and do something mm. which otherwise we might feel inhibited by when we're conforming to conventional daily sartorial strictures 
I absolutely agree with you on that. I love that you say that bravery costumes can make you brave. I think fashion can act in a similar way. Totally, yeah. Okay, Halloween is days away, (laughs) and I am very excited to draw upon both of your expertise on fancy dress and costume as it relates to a day pretty much dedicated to the subject, but it was actually not always that way. Halloween has evolved over hundreds of years from its origins in both pagan and Christian celebrations. Ben, can you tell us about how two such polarized spiritual practices and beliefs kind of came together to lay the foundation for this night of costume revelry? Sure. And I think for me, it's just worth sort of reflecting at the outset that when we think of Halloween now and it's sort of contemporary, commercialized, sort of confection-filled um, uh, way, we're thinking about something that is primarily focused on death, fear of death or the enjoyment of um, the uh, unknown. But when we think about its historical origins, the antecedents of, of contemporary Halloween, we're almost invariably thinking about a series of festivities that are all about life. And so I think it is that quite remarkable transformation over this period. And so if we trace, I mean, there are lots of, as you can imagine, lots of different origin stories, if you like. But if we trace sort of Halloween back to its original origins, we're thinking primarily about the Celtic celebrations of Samhain. And these are essentially a series of public, so um, civic-oriented ceremonies that are commemorating the transition from summer into winter. So we're talking about a liminal moment, both physically, but also psychologically. And as I said, focused very much on life, because this is where you would gather the harvest. This is where you might kind of kill, slaughter your livestock and preserve. So it's all about sort of gathering, if you like, harnessing the sort of life force from nature, which is then going to see you carry you over the winter months um, until the um, spring. And so it's a period where we're thinking about transition, where we're thinking about obviously our communities coming together, um, but also at a time when obviously before electricity, et cetera, darkness is is creeping more into our um, days. The days are becoming uh, much shorter. And so this was also a festivity or series of festivities that are associated with light. So the burning of fires and often the collection of the harvest or the slaughtering of animals would then be sort of celebrated with then perhaps the burning of crops or the burning of sort of grasses, etc. And so that's where you get, I suppose, some of the initial ideas of this being a festivity of light at a time of darkness. Um, But as I said, very much about community, very much about sort of a, a restorative period where through ludic activities communities are being reminded of their cohesion, are being reminded of their their social order and the importance of that. And then we go into what would be All Souls Day, right? Followed by All Saints Day. Can you tell us about kind of this Christian, early Christian mass for dead souls? Yes. So you have All Saints Day or Souls Day, um, 1st of November. And this was essentially a move by the Christian church. Um, so St. Augustine, as he becomes, who is leading the sort of Christianization of Europe. And obviously, as far as he is concerned, these 
festivities that I've mentioned are superstitious, they're pagan. And so rather than trying to rid Britain and and other parts of the, I suppose, Europe more generally of them, he is essentially incorporating those, grafting them into a new celebration, a new festivity, which is All Saints Day. So All Saints Day is essentially the Christian church's attempt to blot out some of these pagan festivities, to supplant a series of festivities that the Christian church doesn't like with something that is more palatable. It's also a way generally of sort of mopping up all of the other sort of saints days for sort of lesser saints that maybe don't have um, either a specific day um, or just a concern that there are, frankly, far too many saints days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so it's a kind of one-stop sort of shop. It's It's a measure of, one, getting rid of some pagan practices that the Christian church doesn't like. It's a way also of, of, as I said, bringing under one sort of banner, under one festivity, saints who maybe don't um, seemingly get um, enough attention. So in that sense, it's quite a smart move by by the Catholic Church. And indeed, a lot of festivities that are now celebrated as Christian do have their origins in um, sort of pagan events. Right. And I think it's it's important to note, too, that something I, found, I read that was really interesting. So All Saints Day is uh, November 1st. It was originally in February. It was moved to November 1st so that it could precede All Souls Day on November 2nd because there was this idea that saints could somehow help the departed souls, you know, get to heaven. But really, by the end of the 12th century, you have All Saints and All Souls Day. Oh, and going back, obviously, Hollow's Eve or Hollow Tide is thus the eve of All Saints Day. Um, but by the 12th century, you kind of have these well-established um, moments in maybe the Christian calendar. Can you talk a little bit about the practice of souling? Because I thought this was so fantastically interesting and kind of speaks to the rooting of kind of our modern-day trick-or-treating? I mean, essentially, and I, and I suppose this is another, if you like, precursor to what we see in the present, um, this idea of a sort of pre-trick-or-treating. And I think what's particularly interesting, a lot of these festivities that are associated with sort of Samhain and, as you said, early medieval practices, it becomes the role particularly of the young because I think that's also something that becomes a major theme when we're thinking about the development of Halloween as we know it today. Right. And so souling, right, is essentially the more well-off people are rewarding their poor neighbors or relatives. Exactly, yeah. For, by praying, right, for the souls in purgatory. Yes. And so you have people maybe going door to door asking for these soul cakes or these baked breads in exchange for prayer. Yeah. I know that that's absolutely right. And I think, again, how that changes, which is quite interesting, of course, after the Reformation in um, Europe in the 16th century, when, of course, as we see a, a move towards Protestantism, we then, of course, have the um, abolition of purgatory. So that, I suppose, also creates sort of various problems with the um, Christianization of these festivities, because if we lose purgatory, um, we then lose a sort of major cause, a raison d'etre for a lot of these events, in particular, the um, souling. 
So presumably that's when we just go straight to the supermarket, get loads of candy and just go door to door. <laughs> exactly so. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> Smash and grab. That's when it got it got to that. We just we skipped a bit in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so speaking about that in between, can you guys talk about kind of how Hollowtide or somewhere in there it becomes Halloween kind of continues to evolve specifically in Britain into the 18th and 19th centuries? And, and you've talked a little bit how it starts to lose those religious uh, Christian associations. Yes, yeah, sure. And as I said, I think it is largely a consequence of the Reformation in the 16th century, so largely associated with uh, Martin Luther. And as chiefly in what would become or what becomes from 1861 sort of Germany, but Central Europe, and then in Britain as well with the sort of break from Rome in the 1530s, as you have the um, spread of Protestantism, and you're therefore changing the sort of doctrinal calendar, it means that you are losing a lot of the Christian, the kind of Catholic rites, which are now regarded as being superstitious. And so essentially you you have people who are familiar with a festivity that is about community, about cohesion, about life-giving. But now, of course, it's, it's, it's lost its, its purpose because no longer is it so strictly linked to ideas of salvation within the church. So you've almost got this sort of continuing festivity losing its purpose, losing it, it, its core value. And I think it's at that moment that you almost, if you like, have the secularization if I can call it that, of Halloween, where I think, as Lucy said, you have the idea of the of the sort of tricking, the people perhaps going sort of door to door um, and sort of begging and seeking alms, but now taking on a much more ludic, performative, playful role. And I think that is what begins to become the sort of dominant narrative here. And that kind of proves that you can try to formalise the belief system as mm. much as as you want, but some old ideas die really hard, exactly. don't they? And I the reality exactly is, that. if you are if you if you are a if you're wedded to the supernatural as a concept, mm. you can't just abandon it no. as an individual just because you know the rules have changed. Yeah. You, you still want to have that aspect of your life and to demonstrate that through, as you say, all of those traditions and all of that. You know, well, frankly, partying. Yeah, and I think particularly <laughs> things like sort of apple bobbing, which had originally been a sort of right which would help you sort of find your sort of partner. I'm not quite sure how what, what the rules That's were. That's a terrible uh, date. <laughs> yeah, and also a ter- <laughs> terrible way to find a life partner potentially. Um, but you know, but, but those festivities are fun, and you want to continue them. So once one meaning's gone, you're going to kind of, I think, you know, human nature being what it is, find other reasons. You'll ascribe a new one. Exactly. It. Yeah. <laughs> And you have, um, you see these like kind of family-centered home celebrations um, and then also this on-the-street revelry that's enjoyed by kind of these troublemaking youth. Can you kind of talk about how that developed in Britain? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I, sure. I mean, I, I don't think that's specifically Halloween in the sense that there's lots of legislation that is passed throughout the medieval period in Britain and continental Europe that anyone who is disguising their identity at a time when you do not have a police force, at a time when communities are very tight, you are going to be very fearful of that. You're going to be sort of fearful of, of these sort of ne'er-do-wells. Um, and, you know, Shakespeare, his plays, lots of sort of references to people in disguise and this idea that in disguise you are more liable to do something that that is nefarious. But I think, I suppose, because you've got a tradition already, um, as you alluded to with the sort of souling and people quite purposefully travelling in groups and bands at night, masked in some form, at Halloween, 
it's at that particular moment where there is maybe an amplification of those concerns. But I, but I think they are sort of longstanding throughout this period, the pre-modern period. So is that um, when we started seeing people kind of dress up in association with All Hallows Eve? Does it extend all the way back to the Christian church? Do you know by chance like what kind of um, caused people to start masking themselves? Well, I think, I mean, again, I think you do have a lot of sort of traditions where, for example, things like mama's plays, which are, you know, um, a, a different time of the year. But I think lots of sort of seasonal rites would often involve elements of costuming. Um, and I think that the role of the costume here, um, again, we've got to remember that this is a predominantly preliterate society. So costuming, using material props are a way of essentially conveying complex ideas about interrelationships between people in a very dramatic visual form to people who otherwise really wouldn't be able to to comprehend. You know, if if you're writing, you're obviously um, missing out large tracts of the population. If you're speaking, well, what's the language in which you're speaking? If it's Latin, the language of authority, then again, you're losing a large number of of, of, of your sort of people, your potential audience. So I think costuming is an inherent part of the performative nature of life during the medieval and, and early modern period. And to your point, that remains the same today with the dem- one of the reasons we love it yeah. is because of its democratic nature. Yeah. It's sort of in the DNA of dressing Absolutely. up. yeah. Fantastic. And so according to author Nicholas Rogers in his 2003 book, Halloween from Pagan Ritual to Party Night, Halloween did not really take hold in North America until the 19th century. So we're a little late to the party. (laughs) (laughs) Although we will usurp it as we will see. But it's really brought to the continent when it's being celebrated by Irish and Scottish immigrants um, before then just being completely co-opted by mainstream society at the end of the decade. It's already lost its religious associations and now it kind of loses its ethnic associations and eventually becomes this nationally celebrated secular holiday slash commercial enterprise extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, for me, what is crucial here is, is, is the role of the youth. I mean, I think um, this is picked up uh, to an extent in, in, in Roger's book. But this idea that when Halloween is, if you like, exported to um, America, and that's largely with um, sort of British settlers wanting to continue traditions, cultural rights that they're familiar with sort of back home to sort of smooth that transition, I suppose, into what is them uh, a sort of alien environment. But it is the youth who often sort of co-opt the traditions, the sort of partying of um, fancy dress, often using it as linked to Halloween, as sort of a sort of hazing rituals and things like that. And it's then, I think, particularly through this youth, that you get the emphasis on sort of mischievous activities, the trickster element coming in. And that, I think, is then how we begin to get a sense of this transition, which I alluded to, that we're moving away from the sort of celebration and commemoration of life to something that's focusing more on the the fright. Um, So again, these sort of bands of students, initially within their own communities, but spreading more broadly to knocking on doors, asking for arms or, or sort of charity. And then if it's not reciprocated, then turning to pranks. And of course, again, in thinking about the shift to America, If previously we've been talking about predominantly rural communities, now, of course, we're almost talking about wholly urban or urbanised communities. And so, of course, the the trickster element there is then sort of, as Lucy said, (laughs) sort of smashing windows and breaking down doors. So, um, you know, there is that, I I think, 
you know, that, that is beginning to sort of set us onto this path towards something that we would recognise as the Halloween that we know, love and maybe fear um, today. <laughs> but I think there are some other sort of big changes as we move into the sort of 20th century. And I think this is where sort of America um, really does maybe comes late to the party, as you say, but in some ways fashionably late, um, as you should <laughs> as you should to all good parties. Um, but I think Hollywood is important here. It's in 1939, for example, that we have The Wizard of Oz. And although ostensibly The Wizard of Oz is not a, a Halloween film, that idea, obviously, of the witch, those characters that we are perhaps increasingly associating with this festivity and time of the year, I think is important. Also important in the 20th century is, of course, the ending of the Second World War. So you have, for example, the ending of sugar rationing. And that might seem quite trivial, but I think that does link again to, as I alluded to um, earlier, perhaps flippantly, but I think no less true, the sort of importance of confection um, during this season. And I think more generally, uh, and as Lucy sort of sort of open by saying, and a theme throughout um, Dress Fancy, is this idea of identity. And after the Second World War, and specifically focusing on the youth, you have, it's often referred to in sort of the UK as the youth quake in the 1950s, 1960s, where a new generation are trying to distance themselves from the thinking, the attitudes of their parents of older generations, which have seen them endure the First and then the Second World War. Um, so thinking that's perhaps regarded as errant. And so we moved to a sort of period where you can essentially be whom you want to be. And I think within this broader context, a festivity that is maybe, as I said, occurring at this liminal time, psychologically, physically, becomes really quite compelling. It, it's a festivity that is increasingly about, or, or could be used to celebrate, the fluidity of, of identity. Exactly. And it's it's really in the early 20th century when you kind of see children being dressed up to participate in Halloween and then, you know, trick-or-treating is kind of standardized and becomes a practice by the 30s and the 80s. You have this huge participation of adults. Um, and, you know, essentially by that period, we have our modern day Halloween, you know, the post-war period, um, kind of speaking to those different influences on it. By the 1980s, Halloween is this multi-million dollar business. And I actually am a little curious to speak with you both as to, you know, I know what our Halloween traditions are in America, but do all of these translate into British culture or are there differences that you would find? I think there's sort of a fundamental difference in that here there is there remains this definite and continued emphasis on, I guess, the classic Halloween tropes. So that focus on the macabre or uh, ideas of uh, pagan ideas, things about memory and death, that is very much still what Halloween is about, certainly in terms of costume here. Um, all of those thoughts about the afterlife, I think, resonate on the streets, yeah. <laughs> certainly in central London, <laughs> on the 31st of October. Whereas, so I think there's this disconnect between that interpretation, which I would say is quite a sort of strict adherence to mm. a kind of set of, an old set of ideas, and this sort of anything goes attitude in the US. So I, British people anecdotally find it totally bizarre that Americans might choose to dress as anything other than a witch or a ghost. <laughs> or maybe if you are super modern, a zombie, but like that's quite kind of out there, yeah, isn't it? No, that is, like that's, that's you're, you're cutting edge at zombie. <laughs> um, I mean, to put that into context, I was thinking about it and I reckon I probably have done 
at least 15 Halloweens as a witch. Not the same witch, obviously. That's been, you know, I've ramped the costume <laughs> oh, absolutely. up. absolutely. <laughs> got to up the ante each Various year. different, like, increasingly inappropriate versions of witch. <laughs> um, you know, that's kind of heartland, I guess, for us. Um, and I think this might have something to do with the fact that we probably, I guess, as we talked about in the beginning, have other fancy dress opportunities here in the UK. Mm. Uh, even as adults, it's not unusual to be invited to a fancy dress party at another time of the year. So that's then where we would explore other ideas in costume. But at Halloween, we're much stricter. It's just about this repetition of age-old ideas. Increasingly, though, I think you are seeing more of an American influence and people are being a bit freer with their mm. approach to that interpretation of the theme. But that's quite a new development. And mm. the other thing that I think you're really good at, which we are terrible at, is that kind of perfect porch setup of the sort of Martha Stewart <laughs> Pinterest wholesomeness. Nobody does that here. That is true. That is like, true. I've never seen, no. I think I may have tried it once and it just looked sort of pathetic. That's a very, that for me feels like Americana at its finest. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> but I think as you're talking, what's also, I think, quite different is in Britain, of course, 5th November is, of course, bonfire night. And that's where we're thinking about commemorating I think in our um, difficult parliamentary times, celebrating perhaps isn't the um, right word, <laughs> but true. the um, survival of Parliament after the failure and exposure of the um, gunpowder plot by Guy Fawkes and his crew, who of course wanted to blow up King James the Sixth um, and, and Parliament. So I think the the proximity of those. So we've only two... got a few days to turn it around from exactly. Halloween, <laughs> sorting out our yeah. guy, burning our bonfire. <laughs> we it's a diary nightmare for us this by this time in autumn. So we've got to keep it simple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what you're telling me is you guys do not have giant Halloween superstores on every corner in the UK as we do in America. We really do. We wish, but we, we know wish. don't. There is, uh, there is quite close to me the non-stock party shop on High oh. Street, Kensington. And it's actually so frightening that my son crosses the road <laughs> to walk on the other side. That's how wussy we are. We're not, we don't like the gory stuff too much. No. <laughs> Yeah, we we kind of have these temporary stores that literally just show up for about six weeks to supply America with all of their Halloween costume needs. I mean, um, one thing we should say, actually, that reminds me that I think it is important. And I, I think we're starting to see this. And I know that this is something that you guys are passionate about, too, on, on Dressed. But, you know, part of the problem with that is, of course, the fact that it's entirely unsustainable mm. and really bad in terms of a sort of fashion practice that we would wear these disposable things and they're all nylon and made of plastic and then we chuck them away. So one of the things that I think is really nice and which we're certainly keeping an eye on is the sort of crafting side of Halloween yeah. that is much more about kind of making sustainable, hand-downable, kind of beautifully mm. rendered ideas that aren't just an Amazon, you know, twelve ninety nine costume yeah. ordered in an emergency. Because I think that just feels so distasteful now. And one of the things I often say is if you don't care about sustainable fashion, you really are not fashionable right mm. now. So you should just find another hobby, <laughs> find another set of interests, because I feel like that's something that we have a responsibility to promote and support, in, including at big festivity times like Halloween or Christmas. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm very glad, actually, that you made that connection, because it is so incredibly true. It definitely ties into capitalism and this idea that if you make disposable costumes that can only be worn once, then people have to buy a new one next year. So yes, sustainable Halloween costumes, dress listeners, that is a fantastic idea. Thank you very much, Lucy and Ben. <laughs> 
So you both have done some fantastic episodes on kind of familiar Halloween fancy dress costume tropes. And you talked about the witch. But also, would you mind kind of just discussing some of the most prominent recognizable of these costumes and where perhaps they've come from? And also, why does the creation of these accessible and instantly recognizable tropes at any given time in history, what does it say about the society and culture within which they are formed, if anything at all? Of course, uh, we've done a particularly random episode (laughs) about the role of bats as a fashion inspiration. So not specifically at Halloween, although obviously it has a kind of gothic vibe Mm. to it, but as a motif in jewellery and in costume. And of course, some of those images which are on our Instagram and we can share with you include some amazing examples, which would be incredible inspiration for a Halloween Mm. costume. Uh, So Victorian examples of women wearing bat dresses, and they are just so of their time. They're, both, yep. they're all illustrations, but they are just, it's so strange to look back at an image which feels like a startlingly modern idea, mm. uh, rendered at a time where it clearly wasn't. But it, but it, again, that's playing with ideas around the supernatural. Uh, and we make lots of references to the literature of the period, actually. And sort of, if you think about things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and this idea of exploring who we are on, an, on a mm. sort of base level, and the idea of the bat being a symbol, both for new life, but also for death. And again, yeah. that echoes the things that Ben was saying about the origins of Halloween. So that's an interesting one, or, <laughs> unless you hate bats. Um, <laughs> we've also done uh, a special episode covering our Ben and my personal Halloween highs and lows, which may or may not be interesting. Um, it sort of is a review over the years and it includes some uh, hungover flashbacks to a, a ball I gave called the Scoundrels Ball at Brunswick House here in London. Uh, so that's a good one. And um, separately, we've covered two big issues that come up time and time again, not just at this time of year, but often at this time of year, and that is bad taste and cultural appropriation. And I think that's right. And coming back um, to, <laughs> to your point about what all of these costumes say about society and culture, um, I think it demonstrates this sort of adaptability, the sort of recurrence of some of these tropes, as you say, that fancy dress is obviously very democratic. There are no barriers to entry in terms of, you know, buying a lot for it or anything like that. Anyone can can dress up at any age. Um, and I think that's what is quite remarkable. Fancy dress, if you think about it, is probably one of the few forms of dress that most people alive today will wear or indeed have already worn at some point in their lives for however long and however creatively. Even if they have to be forced into it. Even if they have to be forced. (laughs) And Lucy has experienced that I have done that several times. (laughs) But I think it also demonstrates that, you know, fancy dress is culturally contingent. It is able to sort of feed on if you like the sort of the, the, the zeitgeist. It is able because of it, as I've said, not just for Halloween, but generally occurring at a moment that is set apart physically and psychologically from the normal rules and expectations of people's lives, where the the, the social playing field is flattened as you're all in costume, it enables then what unites us, our sort of shared values, to be projected. And I think that's why maybe at Halloween, but frankly at any moment, people are inclined to take little excuse to to don a fancy um, dress (laughs) costume. Which is why it's incredibly disconcerting when you kind of look historically and see how, you know, if it's kind of part of this collective, you know, identity or appeal to what's happening socially or politically to see kind of these overtly racist Halloween costume suggestions for, especially for children in the 1910s and 20s. I was 
incredibly, I don't know why I was shocked um, because of, you know, kind of the period in which I was looking, but I found, I think it was Ladies Home Journal or, or one of these early publications that had costume suggestions for children to dress your child as a Chinaman or as a pickaninny. And then it was accompanied by these incredibly explicit instructions to parents about how to recreate these costumes for their children. And, you know, I'd like to say that this is a thing of the past, but We have so many worldly recent blackface controversies that it's just simply not the case. Can you talk a little bit more about the role that racism and cultural appropriation have played in the construction of Halloween fantasies? And why do you think it remains this constant theme even today in our so-called progressive culture? Mm. I I mean, I think you're right. There is this great sort of prevailing sadness about, um, as you said, these... um, negative tropes occurring. But I think the point for me is that chiefly in these scenarios, particularly at Halloween, is that people are often caught up in focusing on what they could wear, that they're not necessarily thinking about what they should be wearing. There's a sense, therefore, that at these sort of festive occasions, entertainment comes before ethics. And I think we've discussed some of these themes before in our um, podcast one when we were looking at Weldon's, which was a supplier of costume, um, and we looked at the illustrations. And you're right, you know, it's the same sort of period from what you you were just referencing there, Cassidy. You do get these, you know, extraordinary costumes um, that are sort of casually racist. That we would like to think we've moved beyond that. But but we haven't. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned sort of blackface and, of course, just very recently, sort of Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, apologising for his sort of youthful indiscretions. Um, and even in the apology, sort of in some ways minimising mm. what he was doing by sort of saying that he just didn't appreciate, didn't understand how harmful that could be, which... Which in itself feels like another layer of betrayal, exactly, I think. Exactly, yeah, completely that, that, so. The way that was articulated. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, that's magnified at events like sort of Halloween. Um, And I think in 2011, you had Teen Vogue launching a nationwide campaign, chiefly within America, but obviously it went global, which was My Culture is Not a Costume. And it was these very accompanied by a very, very powerful video where you had individuals being confronted with a sort of Halloween fancy dress version of their sort of culture, their values whittled down to this um, sort of plastic, multicolored, flimsy garment. And they were deeply upset. And so it does happen, you know, again and alas again. And actually, interestingly, I remember in that those films, a lot of the language that they used around to, to express their anger and mm. to, to try, I think, to, to make an audience understand why, uh, why this is offensive, which is kind of embarrassing that you have to exactly. spell it out. But yeah. this that was the whole purpose of this campaign and it was it was clearly necessary and a yeah. good idea. So it's definitely worth watching in case anyone has any confusion around <laughs> what isn't isn't okay. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things, interestingly, that they cited was that it was the disposable nature of it. Yes. So to our point about sustainability and throwaway culture, the fact that it was a disposable costume made it so much worse. It was like that was insult on, onto injury. It was yeah. just the sort of the fact that it was, it could be reduced to that, I think mm. was the point. It was sort of everything about it is about a reduction of an yeah. entire culture into one idea for one night for your entertainment. Yeah. But, you know, we found this such an issue. And I think it has been one of the things that has surprised and 
and made us feel, I think, ashamed mm. generally that this is such an issue across the industry. So even outside of costume, but in fashion more generally, we've had to dedicate whole episodes to shocking examples like the Gucci blackface jumper, which led us to sort of examine big questions about diversity and inclusion within the fashion industry. It, uh, that episode is called Gucci Showtime, and it was around that big Glenn Lutchford mm. campaign, which was a, an amazing piece of branded content. But you know, the reality is the rhinestones can't detract from what is raw racism. And the fact that we keep coming up, it seems like there hasn't been a week since we no. started recording a year ago where there hasn't been an example in popular culture that fits into this conversation. And the sooner that they stop happening, the better. I think it's why conversations like this one are really important and we'll certainly continue to uh, share material that is hopefully educational. Mm. Absolutely. And I think you said that, when did you say that Vogue video was? At 2011. Okay, so 2011. And yet today you can still search, for instance, a Native American costume. And what will come up is a war chief hottie in as many different versions as you can possibly imagine. And that kind of takes me to my next question, which is talking about sexy Halloween <laughs> costumes. I don't know if that's a thing in the UK, but it's certainly a phenomenon in America. And if you Google Halloween costume, which I recently did, six out of the first 10 costumes were sexy. So sexy nurse, sexy pirate. Then you had an adult eggplant, a kid's pizza, and then you had a sexy witch. And I'm sure there's a sexy pizza costume out there. I don't doubt it. I don't want to see a sexy pizza. No. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it about society? And maybe it's just American society, you'll have to tell me, that has kind of transformed this art and act of dressing up into, you know, this commodification of the female form. I think that's really important and really fascinating. And I don't think you're alone. So I'm afraid we too have mm. the specter of the sexy anything, uh, certainly around Halloween. I think more so around Halloween than yeah. in other costume occasions here. I guess because, you know, to link back to what Ben was saying about it being a liminal time with no rules, maybe that's when we get sexy. I mean, it's so <laughs> revolting to think of it like that. Um, I also wonder, I, so I think if you Googled, you know, I think, I don't think it's probably six out of 10 costumes here. It's probably a little less of the sexy yeah, to non-sexy ratio, but it's definitely still here. So you're not alone. I mean, I do wonder whether they just have the pirate costume and they, they just kind of half the size and say, now it's a sexy pirate. Like, I don't even know how they're making those decisions. Um, but it's funny, I, in my TED talk, I use an example of a sexy handmaiden, which was just a complete misjudgment yeah. of the cultural mood. So I'm talking about it in reference, obviously, to all of the silent protests at things like uh, the Kavanaugh hearings. And uh, and then, and it was an American firm, um, came up with the sexy handmaiden. And I show in the talk a, a picture of, of this and it's it got a big laugh in the room because it's obviously such a ridiculous idea you know she's dressed as margaret atwood's dystopian nightmare but she's got a thigh split like right up to her ass and sky high heels and this coy kind of sexy face and it's so ridiculous and awful <laughs> and so I think it's it's what's weird about those sexy ideas is then they're, they're never actually that sexy. So if you look at the way Heidi Klum does Halloween, I think it's fair to say mm. that she can't. I mean, she's gone as an apple and a snake and still been sexier than any of the <laughs> things that you've just referenced on your Google search. <laughs> so, um, so again, it's about definitions, I guess, of sexy. How can you look that sexy in any that amount of man-made fiber? <laughs> um, 
Uh, but of course, you know, we're happy to hang out with sexy pirates. But to your point, it's very rarely men who are uh, rendered sexy by the, those commercial costumes. And I guess that split between the way we see men in, yeah. in costume and the way we see women in costume is something that we've talked about in the past. And it's actually a really fascinating way into that conversation mm. about how we view bodies. I think you're right, because... You know, as you're um, talking there, I think one of the episodes where we discussed that perhaps at length was in an episode um, where we're talking with um, Teresa Wing from the University of Michigan about cosplay. And what Teresa was saying is that cosplay is a sartorial form, a sort of form of fancy dress, if you like, that is largely enjoyed, largely participated in by um, females. And so that's in some ways quite unusual um, because, you know, as, as Lucy and, and, and you have alluded to, when we do tend to see costumes for women or aim specifically at women and, and, and also in a sense specifically sort of superhero costumes, it's this idea that to be heroic, somehow women have to be dressed down and reveal more flesh. But if you then think about the male equivalent, often they are being dressed up with sort of bodysuits, padding. Armor. And so that imbalance, the way that that is reflected, those sort of societal values, well, not, well, not sort of value at all, societal ideas, that again, we probably largely think we've rid our society of, thank goodness, but it's how they then crop up in fancy dress, almost as a sort of subliminal, subconscious sort of dark spot that it's still there, um, that I think it surfaces possibly more at these liminal moments, precisely as Lucy said, because they are liminal. And I think that's what does make them so chilling in a way, because it, it tells us that possibly we aren't as progressive, um, Cassidy, as, as you said, as we might like to think we are. And it means that the male gaze is still yeah. the prominent, the default position, yeah. I guess. And actually, I remember in the cosplay conversation, one of the interesting things about that was that it was about how cosplay, one of the problems is about how the cosplay community is talked about and exploited, I guess, in the press. So yeah. you, at a cosplay convention, you are likely, if if press cover it, to uh, for it to be a sort of the headline act is the most scantily clad girl yeah. in the room, even though she may not represent at all uh, yeah. or fairly represent uh, the majority of people there. So again, that's about the male gaze deciding what the narrative is, photographing the narrative, editing and publishing the narrative. And that feels to me very similar to putting the word sexy in front of every costume because who is the person judging? Exactly. It's certainly not women sitting around saying, I'd really like to wear a red dress that Margaret Atwood wouldn't like split to my thigh. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> you know. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I, we certainly should say that there is, of course, agency involved in women's That's choices true. to wear costume. If you want to be a sexy nurse, you can certainly Go be a sexy wild nurse. Go sexy nurse. Yes. <laughs> Especially if you're an actual nurse, yes, I yes. feel. Exactly. That would be great. <laughs> um, but I think kind of this, you know, marketing of sexiness kind of overshadows that uh, ingenuity that comes with costume and costume making, right? Right? It's kind of become the focus of something that once could be this really creative, expressive act. Yes, I totally agree with that. All right. So we are nearing the end of our time together. This has been fantastic. I would like to conclude with a fancy dress forecast <laughs> by my favorite fancy dress experts. Are there any costumes in particular you're expecting this Halloween season or anything you would like to see? I mean, I think we've alluded to it already, but 
we're often told that we're living in sort of tense political times. And I think that applies equally on both sides of the Atlantic at the moment. Here in the UK, with the shenanigans of Boris Johnson and um, Brexit, um, but also, of course, in America with um, President Trump and the um, impending election. So it's at Halloween that we do tend to see some really, really creative and quite biting political costumes. So I think from both sides of the Atlantic, I am expecting to see <laughs> some some people letting <laughs> le- letting vent with their um, sewing needles and glue guns and um, putting some of their sort of political dismay into sartorial form. I think I certainly will be. <laughs> is that what you were doing? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, mine is much less esoteric. I, <laughs> I just want to see more effort from the Kardashians. I felt very unimpressed by their Victoria's Secret get-up, yes. their sort of angels impression last year. It just honestly looked like they'd forgotten to get dressed. There was no effort uh, at all, So that was just a complete fail as far as I was concerned. Um, and the other thing is I've just encountered a woman on Instagram called Crochetverse, who crochets the most insanely intricate 1980s film character costumes for children. And I've become overnight <laughs> obsessed with them. I'm wondering if she could do one slightly bigger for me. They're really hard to describe, but we'll share the pictures with you. But what we really love most, I guess, is when listeners share with us mm. costumes they've made or are making. I particularly like seeing the kind of pre and the post no, I do, make. I do. Um, so if any of your listeners are doing that, then do uh, do show us, tag us your on your creations or the making of them uh, on our Instagram at Dress Fancy Podcast, because we'd quite like to do a top 10 roundup. Oh, that'd be, be good. Yeah, that'd be really Crowdsource good our most innovative <laughs> creative costumes from around the world. <laughs> and do you both already have your costumes planned? No, I uh, it's a I, silence yeah. as I start to panic <laughs> about the timing. Yeah, no, the, 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 yeah, we do need to get our skates on. But no, I mean, I think I think something sort of acerbic and political. That's You're the going sort of political. mood. Okay, yeah, this I, is a I'm strong in. statement, Ben. Yeah, no, I think so. I don't know myself, but I am knee deep in a. <laughs> Uh, child's costume, which in, has involved the purchase of an industrial shredder. Um, so I'll keep you posted on that. It may or may not work. I don't know. A typical day in the life of Lucy Clayton. <laughs> I've got to get back to it. So I'm going to have to. <laughs> Lucy and Ben, thank you so much for joining us all the way from London. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. It's been brilliant. It really has. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy and Ben, for being here. It is so interesting how many parallels are to be made between fashion and fancy dress and or costume, as we call it here in America. And I especially love what Lucy had to say about sustainability and Halloween, because, you know, as an annual event, it's a bit easier to look past its role in stimulating consumer consumption of disposable items of dress. But as you guys talked about, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So this is clearly a huge problem. It certainly is. And I am so glad that Lucy brought it to our attention along with the rallying cry for this return to the homemade costume, as you have demonstrated you do so well, (laughs) which is comprised of repurposed material. So there's something to be said about creating your own costume about the time and the care, but also the thought that really goes into kind of inventing new ways to kind of share um, this creative spirit. So yeah, very cool. So that does it for us today, dress listeners. Whatever you do this Halloween season, may you remember the legacy of Halloween and fancy dress next time you get dressed. Please join us for next Thursday's mini-sode where we answer listener questions. If you would like to send us a listener question, you can do so at 
dressed at iheartmedia.com, or you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. You can also find us on Twitter or on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. As always, a huge thank you to our producers, Casey Pregram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia who makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.